in the beginning, God. First four words of the Bible. In the Hebrew, it's only two. Bereshet bara Elohim. Scholar John Gerstner said that the first four words of the book of Genesis are sufficient proof for the Bible's inspiration. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God, Scripture tells us, created the heavens and the earth. But in the beginning, God. We start with God. I've already told you that the writer Moses uses the name God and, and uh, the name Elohim 35 times in the opening chapter of Genesis. You can't get away from God. At the beginning is God. In the end will be God. God is at the center of all things. The ancient Jewish people weren't scientists. They weren't profound theologians. They weren't philosophers. They were relatively primitive people that left us this book which embodies the most profound wisdom. That fact should convince us that this book has been given to us by God. In the beginning, God. What was in the beginning? We, we, need, to, we need to think uh, deeply. We've got to slow down and, and ponder some great ideas. Ponder God. What was in the beginning? Well, if the alternative is that it was either God or nothing, then that's not really a choice because nothing is nothing. <laughs> it's not conceivable. And so therefore the choice vanishes. If the alternative is between God and nothing, that really isn't a choice, for nothing is nothing, and we're left with the statement, in the beginning, God. Now, the Spirit of God's here with us this morning. You believe that? We need him. I need him. Sometimes you feel your need for him. Sometimes you don't feel your need for him, but you always need him. There's often a tone with sermons, like sermons have tones, and, and the tone of a sermon should be shaped by the text that the sermon is derived from. But sermons are also shaped by the person that's preaching them, right? And so I think that this sermon will have a serious tone to it today because the topic is God. In the beginning, God. It would be kind of a, a miss if I just got up here and cracked jokes the whole time. But this sermon is undoubtedly shaped by my own confrontations with the certainty of death. As many of you know, my dad's terminally ill right now and he's on hospice care. And so that shapes me. Influences my perspective. 
and my tone. I remember when I first started preaching, younger guy, and part of a bigger church. I don't know whether it was a mega church or not, but there was a couple thousand people there, and I was part of the preaching team of this church. And, and I thought I was good. And one of the reasons why I thought I was good is because I measured good preaching by your ability to engage people and to make people laugh. And I was, I'm good at it. And I remember sitting in this conference where all these pastors were sitting. And so I was like, I was sitting with this group of guys, younger guys, who were just starting to preach. And it was guys, pastors there of all ages. But I remember sitting there, and we were kind of smugly sitting there and thinking how great we were going to be. And John Piper, who many of you know, he was an older man even then, (laughs) he got up and he addressed us with a seriousness that only John Piper can bring. And he started talking about pastors who were more concerned about being funny than they were about preaching God's word. And it started to get my attention. All of us were sitting there. He started to get our attention. And then he said something that like, grabbed me by the shirt and jacked me up. He, he said that we were consumed with being funny as if that was all Jesus was concerned about. And then he shouted these words. Come on, Jesus. Get funny. And I remember thinking, maybe I signed up for the wrong thing. See, my... What you need most from a preacher is to give you a sense of God. That's what you need most. My priority as a preacher is not to be comical, though occasionally I will be funny. That's not my priority. My priority as a preacher is not to be philosophical, although philosophy can sometimes help us understand truth. My priority is not to be political, although... Truth about God has political implications. And it's not to be fashionable. Although I know myself to be handsome and fairly (laughs) nicely dressed most of the time. My priority as a preacher is to give you a sense of God, of his glory, of the love of Christ who's for those who so desperately need to know about it. So what should come into our minds when we think about God? And why is that important? It's important because the culture that we live in, and this is true for every culture, we don't don't want to make the mistake of thinking that we're the most important generation that has ever lived. The culture we live in, the cultural air we breathe, Being part of culture shapes us. 
Just like I'm being shaped by the experience of my dad in hospice care, culture is shaping us, but culture shapes us in ways that are often go undetected. You're not, you're not aware of it. It shapes our thoughts, our ideas, our convictions. And our culture right now is one that leaves us with great thoughts of man, but leaves room for only small thoughts about God. What happens when people are big and God is small? Stuff happens. Things happen. Ignorance of God, ignorance of his ways, ignorance of what it means to experience a relationship with him and communion with him, having a relationship with him, lie at the root of what I would consider to be much weakness in the state of the church today. And I don't mean just Brandywine Grace. I mean the church at large. Small thoughts of God will lead to a weak religion, will lead to a weak impact. We need to have big thoughts of God. Tozer, who I'm going to, A.W. Tozer, who I'll quote often today, says this, the low view of God that's entertained almost universally among Christians as the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. Did you hear that? Did you get that? I'll read it again. The low view of God that's entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. Right thinking leads to right actions. If you think wrongly about God, you're going to start thinking wrongly about a lot of things. This is point. It's difficult, I dare say impossible, to follow Jesus to live an upright, moral life, to follow Jesus joyfully, to keep our moral practices sound, to keep our attitudes right if our thoughts about God are inadequate or in error. So we got to think rightly about God. God wants to make sure we do that. So how does he start the Bible out? In the beginning, God. you got to start with me. you got to start with God. Who's with me? If you want to live with more spiritual power, we got to try and think about God more closely and more nearly as he is. Not as we want him to be. Not as we've created him to be in our minds, but as he truly is. And the Bible gives us God as he truly is. Now, God as he truly is is going to be unsettling to us. The God of my own making, I can mold him and make him so that he never unsettles me. He never says anything that I don't want to hear. He never challenges me. The, but the God of Scripture, if you really want to uh, know who he is, it's going to shake you up. <laughs> what should come into our minds when we think about God? Three things, and they're going to come right from this text and the study of books like A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy, J.I. Packer's Knowing God, and James Boyce's commentary on Genesis. What should come into our minds when we think about God? Number one, God is self-existent. In the beginning, God. 
This is an implication of what is being said here. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was God. In the beginning, God is telling us that God is self-existent. That is not true of anything else. It's not true of anyone else. God is self-existent. That means he has no, he has no origins. He has no beginning. He's not dependent upon something else to bring him into being. Everything else, everything in this world depends on some other thing or some other person and ultimately on God. We're talking about cause and effect. And what I'm saying here is that everything you see has a cause and effect except for God. He is the only uncaused one. You still with me? Every effect must have an adequate cause, but God is the ultimate cause and is himself uncaused. That's a riddle for you. God has no origins. This is hard for us. What this means is that God is beyond our ability to comprehend him. He's incomprehensible. Now, don't make the mistake there and think that we can't know God. We can know God. Thanks be to God that he's disclosed himself to us. The psalmist wrote, what is man that you are mindful of him? He's mindful of us and he's actually disclosed himself to us, exposed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ and through his word. But God is incomprehensible in the sense that we can't know all that there is no, to know about God because we couldn't hold it. Everything we see, everything we smell, everything we hear, everything we taste, everything we touch has origins. We argue that anything that we observe must have a cause to explain it. And we look for causes. But if God is the cause behind everything, then he can't be explained or known like other objects. And that's what bothers us. Philosophers in here? Any scientists in here? This is why scientists and philosophers, and when we begin to think in terms that are philosophical or scientific, we can get sideways with God. Because we're impatient with anything that refuses to give an account of itself. Scientists, any good scientist will admit that there's a lot we don't know, or they don't know. But it is difficult for a scientist 
to agree that there is something we could never fully know. That's difficult. Or that we don't have a technique or a method for discovering. So what do we do? What do we do when we, we feel like we want to understand, we need to comprehend, we, we want to understand more deeply? Well, one thing I will say is scientists are great help to us because they push, they push, they push, they push, they push. And that's good. It's good to learn as much as we can. God has left us a lot to learn about himself. But when we try to bring God down to our level, when we try to manage him so that we can understand him, we try to define him with principles that make, make it understandable for us, God eludes us. I think this is why, this is one of the reasons why I believe so many Bible-believing people, so many Christians spend so little time thinking just about God and who he is and his attributes because it's a little too painful. It's a little too uncomfortable. Just thinking about God and who he is. Do you ever do that for your devotions? Do you just sit and think, God, who are you? Few of us can sit still enough to let our hearts ponder deep and awesome things. It's uncomfortable. We prefer to think more practically. How to make two blades of grass grow where we can only get one blade of grass to grow. How to get, how to, how to find a makeup that takes care of blemishes so that I can get that airbrushed look like everybody I see on TV. That's real practical. That meets a practical need. But God... Sitting and pondering who you are, that takes me to places that are, make me uncomfortable. And the price we pay for that is a heavy one. The price we pay is an increasingly secularized religion, a godless, godless religion, and decay in our souls. We can't be scared of silence, church. You gotta be willing to be silent. You gotta be willing to be quiet before the Lord. You gotta be willing to take your Bible and nothing else. Put your beeping phone aside for a little while and just engage with God. This is oftentimes why when you meet people who are, spend a lot of time outdoors, you'll meet people sometimes who have more of a sense of God now, they might not call it that, and they might have begun to worship creation. But oftentimes, when I meet people that spend a lot of time outdoors, surfers, rock climbers, mountain climbers, hikers, 
they, they, they don't realize it sometimes, but they're getting a sense of God in his creation. Some of you all need to get outside more. You spend too much time inside. You're too comfortable on the sofa, and you spend too much time watching TV, and you need to get outside a little more and look up and outside of your own little circumstances and, and get a sense of God and his creation. Amen? Try it. Go for a walk this week and take in creation, but then meditate on the person of God, remembering that he is self-existent, that no one created God, that he is the great causer, that he is completely uncaused, and allow these things to give you a sense of God that will enrich your spiritual life. All right, let's keep going. What should come into our minds when we think about God? In the beginning, God. God is self-existent, number one. God is self-sufficient, number two. There's a difference. Self-existent means that God has no origins. Self-sufficient means that God is dependent on, guess how many people? None. He's dependent upon no one. He has no needs. This is not true of you. You have so many needs. You are needy people. If we cut off the supply of oxygen into this room, it's crazy, folks. But if we do that, we will not live but for a few moments. You've tried to hold your breath. How long can we live? Cut Cut oxygen flow off even for a few minutes and we're toast. Laws of nature were dependent upon them. Light, heat, gravity. When those laws cease, we die. It's not true of God. It's not true of God. It's simply not true. Everything, all the laws of nature could cease and he would still exist. Because he's not dependent on any person or anything. But we don't like that because we want God. We would never say it this way, but we really do want God to be to need us a little bit. We like to feel appreciated. We like to feel needed. We want God to need us. And so we come up with ideas like this in the back of our mind. That God lacked something, and so he created in order to take care of his lack. So we say or think things like God lacked glory, and so he created human beings to bring it. Or God needed love, so he created us to love him. Or God was lonely, so he created us. To keep him company. It makes us feel better. But I'm just going to tell you right now. God doesn't need us. He loves us. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But he doesn't need us. We tend to think our value comes from what we do for God. 
That's not where value comes from. It's not where our value comes from. Our value, according to the Bible, human beings have value because God gives it to us. What motivated God to create you and then to save you? The scripture tells us it was according to the pleasure of his will. He did it because it pleased him to do it. Who's with me? I hate to break it to you this way, but God doesn't need any helpers. Now he's entrusted a work of management to us. We're going to see it right here in the first three chapters. He tells the man and woman, he creates them and says, be fruitful and multiply. It's a command. He tells us to, to engage in this work of management in the world. And if we're Christians, he tells us to go and make disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations. We've got work to do. But it's not because Jesus needs helpers. It's not because God needs helpers. It's because out of his own goodwill, he wants to include you, include us in the management and the fulfillment of his commands and of his mission. Does this make sense? It's amazing. Like really, truly, if we consider who God is, why involve us anyway? Like it's like, it's like, a, it's, it's, it's like someone working on a car and involving a three-year-old with them. It's like, okay, I'm going to involve you, but it's going to triple the time that it takes to get this thing done. Why should a father involve a three-year-old in, a, in, a, in a, a, a car repair? It's only because he loves them. It's not because he's going to be more efficient. It's not because he's going to get the job done any quicker. He might not get the job done at all. Isn't it amazing that God, he could get the mission done. He can get it done without us. He could do it a lot better without us. It would appear that we're slowing things down. But, but God does this out of his own good will. He want, this is the way he wants to accomplish his mission. He wants to involve us. So we can't get these things messed up. Let me say this also. God doesn't need you to defend him. Some of you all feel like God needs you. He doesn't need you. We will have opportunities to speak for God before those who would dishonor him and malign him. And we ought to do it when God gives us those opportunities. But even if you don't, even if you shirk at your responsibility to do so, we should never think that God is deprived in some way. God doesn't need to be defended. A God who needs to be defended is a God who can defend us only when someone's defending him. That's not a very powerful God. God needs no defense. The God of the Bible is the self-sufficient one who is the true defender of his people. Amen. I wish there's some people that have taken it upon themselves to defend God. I see them on the news. They, 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 they feel that God needs defending. And sometimes I wish that they would shut their mouths. 
because they actually paint a picture of this God who needs defending that is an inaccurate picture of who God is. In their attempts to defend God, they actually break all kinds of commandments. and fail to follow the example of their Savior, Jesus. What's the importance of this? Let me just say there's application here in the idea that God is self-sufficient. This is hugely important because the Scripture tells us that God is the only truly self-sufficient one, which is why the Bible is always talking about the F word. And when I mean F word, I mean faith. God, the Bible's always talking about faith. Always talking about faith. Why? Because faith is putting your trust in the only one who is truly self-sufficient. That's what faith is. It's belief in God. Belief that he is trustworthy. Belief that, that he's going to take care of you. Belief that he is, that he exists, and he rewards those who follow him. This is what faith is. Unbelief is perverted faith. Because unbelief is when we don't put our trust in the only self-sufficient one, and we put our trust in someone else or in something else. That's why the Bible talks about faith over and over and over and over again. If we're not trusting God, what we're actually saying is that either we or some other person or some other thing is more trustworthy than him. It's slander against God and it's foolish. <laughs> but we do it. My goodness, we do it. I, 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 I feel like my unbelief this week is like, it's, there's so much unbelief. I believe I'm a Christian. I believe I have put my confidence in God to save me. But I go in and out like all day long of putting my trust in other things. Putting my trust in a plan. Putting my trust in people following the plan that I created. Putting my trust in money. Putting my trust in what will bring me happiness. I regularly, and so do you, put my trust in things to make me happy instead of God, as if these things would make me happier and satisfy me more than God will and does. All of that, friends, is unbelief. It's to be repented of and to ask God to help us to trust him because he's trustworthy. What are you putting your trust in to rescue you? What are you putting your trust in to satisfy you? What are you putting your trust in to solve your problems? What are you putting your trust in to make you happy? When you are tempted, what, are you, what tempts you to put your trust in it rather than God? God's the only self-sufficient one. And when we are trusting him, we have a solid foundation for life. That's the two, first two. 
What should come into our mind when we think about God from this text of Scripture? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That God is self-existent. That God is self-sufficient. And finally, God is eternal. God has always been. God will always be. He's always the same. He's never changing. It's all over the Bible. Abraham knew God as the eternal God. Moses wrote, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Revelation calls God the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Revelation says that the angels around the throne of God call out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The scripture's full of this eternality of God. There's two major consequences to God being eternal. One is that he's unchangeable. He's not changing. This is so important for us to remember, and it's hard for us to grasp because we're so changeable. We change from hour to hour, from day to day, and we tend to think that God's like us. God's unchanging. That means the love for you that he has shown for you in Christ is never going to change. You say, well, what if I keep messing up? God loves you eternally. His love for you is never going to change. We need to hear that over and over and over again. Because the people sitting next to you are going to get tired of you and tired. We and we get tired of each other. I get tired looking in the mirror and I get tired of myself. But God never tires of me. He never stops loving me. And he looks at me through the robes of righteousness that I'm clothed in because of the work of Jesus. Isn't this wonderful truth? God is eternal. He's not changing. Whatever he is, he will always be. It also means that he's inescapable. You're going to run into God. You can run into him today. Or you can ignore him and ignore him and ignore him and ignore him. And you'll run into him at the end of your life. If God were human and we didn't like him, we could just ignore him. I've done that to people I don't like. Ignore him. Or we could wait for him to change his mind. Wait for him to die. God doesn't change his mind. He's not going to move away. And he will not die. Can't escape him. If we ignore him now, we'll have to deal with him in the life to come. If we reject him now, we'll eventually have to face the one we rejected. This is deep stuff, guys. We're in the deep. We just don't like death, though. Few cultures have sanitized death the way America has. 
We don't like to talk about death. We spray perfume on it. Don't want to have to deal with it. So uncomfortable. We don't know what to say. We want to make it go away. Want to feel happy. But death is coming. You just have to live long enough and you're going to meet, you know somebody that's going to die. You're going to die. You're, you're closer to death today than you were yesterday. It makes us feel so uncomfortable. That's one of the reasons why funerals are helpful. Because they allow us time to think deeply. They allow us time to mourn. They, they give us time, as uncomfortable as it is, to think about deep things. At the grad parties you're going to, at the block parties, at the frat parties, at the birthday parties, at the wedding parties. We're just having fun. Nobody's evaluating how wisely they're living their lives. <laughs> but funerals will get you thinking, won't they? They force you to contemplate. Death is an enemy, but it's an evangelist. Death is like a detox clinic. It'll sober you up. Death holds up a picket sign and says, life is short. How are you spending your time? What are you living for? What will people say about me when I die? What happens to me when I die? I always say this when I do a funeral. I can't speak to the dead. I can only speak to the living. And here's what I always tell people at a funeral. That Jesus offers real, rock, solid, eternal hope to everyone who trusts in him. Jesus offers real, rock-solid, eternal hope to all who trust in him. So when we're contemplating deep things, when we're contemplating God, the deep things of God, when we're contemplating the fact that he's inescapable, that he's eternal, when we're dealing with the reality of life's shortness, when, we, when the reality of death's approach is upon us, the reality that one day we'll say goodbye to this world and one day we'll say goodbye to those we love, when we're dealing with the reality of the pain of our own failures, our own mistakes, our own sins, our own choices, the reality of our frailty. When we're dealing with that, when we're really dealing with it, it will expose you as weak. You'll feel weak. That's God's intent. God wants you to see how weak you are so he can show himself to you as the solution. He can show himself to you as the one who makes you strong. He can show himself to you as one that you would say, though you are needy, I'm going to meet all of your needs so that you can say Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The Bible says that those who are needy recognize some things. They recognize that their good deeds will never outweigh their bad. They recognize 
that they feel like they have this need for forgiveness, that they have this need for hope, that they have a, a need for a, 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 a rock-solid idea, concept of what the future holds. And, and what the Bible tells us is that we can find that in Jesus. He came to call the needy. He came to call sinners to repentance. If you're sitting here and the offer of Christ is coming to you and you're saying, no, I'm good, you're in a bad place. You're not identifying yourself as needy. If Jesus comes to you and says, I want to help you, you acknowledge you need his help. You don't have to clean yourself up to get to God. You just come needy. Anyone feeling needy this morning? Feeling weak? Feeling insecure? Feeling fearful as you consider death? Feeling aware of your sins? Come to Jesus. Jesus will have you. Will you have Jesus? How does he offer hope? Through his perfect life, suffering, death, and resurrection, he's able to save us. Jesus offers real, rock-solid, eternal hope to all who trust in him. At the end of all things, there's no one else that can help you. There's only God. He's the one who was, who is, and is to come. He's the self-existent one. He's the self-sufficient one. He's the eternal one. And we meet him right here in the beginning. Today, we have this opportunity to come to terms with him. To receive the help that he offers. Knowing that we will certainly meet him in the end. Let's pray.